When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I did not want to do a full-on NBA Finals preview. Did that with Nate Duncan for Dunked On. Of course, done a lot of it with Locked On Warriors. So instead, had on Jared Dubin, friend of the show, talented freelance writer. And we went through a series of different things. Started out with kind of our lessons of the playoffs so far. Then went into some of the off-seasons that we're looking forward to, including some of those teams that we learned things from in the playoffs. And then a little bit on the finals towards the end. This episode does not have timestamps because... It kind of flowed from one thing to the other, and it is also brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You can post jobs for free on ZipRecruiter at ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. You can check it out. Conversation runs, I think it's a little less than an hour. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. You and I talked for Real Jam Radio about a month ago, a little bit more than that, probably about six weeks, because we did the the preview of the first round. And where I wanted to start this, we'll go in plenty of directions, is just what what do you think has changed about the way you're thinking about the league, about these te- the teams in the finals or anything else over that six weeks? Well, it's, it's hard to say exactly when we talked, because I feel like the conference finals ended six weeks ago themselves. So it throws off my perception of time a little bit in terms of when we actually had that conversation. Um, In terms of anything that's changed, I don't know that anything has really changed about my opinion about anything about the league since then. Like We came into the season thinking that the Cavs and Warriors were going to meet in the finals and really be mostly unchallenged on their way to get there, and that is exactly what happened. So it's... You know, maybe there are some smaller picture things that changed, like you know the the Celtics. I guess are more interesting now that they definitely have the number one pick, as opposed to you know a top four pick, which we knew all along was going to happen. Um, you know, other than that, it's like things that we already knew going in. Like we were talking about the Jazz and the Clippers. Like whoever loses that series is going to be working at an information deficit. Uh, you know, based on what they want to do this summer. That actually happened. We were talking about, um, I think it was the Raptors. And, like, if they can't beat the Cavs, like, what's going to happen with them this summer? And then they came out and got swept by the Cavs. You know, it's like everything sort of played out pretty much exactly how we expected it to. So I'm not sure anything about my opinion about really anything has changed. Are you in the same boat? The biggest thing that changed for me is just how far away the Celtics and the Raptors are from from competing against the Cavs. So some of that, of course, is that both those teams dealt with injuries to their point guards for parts of the series. But even in the parts when they were closer to full strength, I mean, Cleveland looked like a completely different animal. And Cleveland is is a very good team. I'm not knocking them in any way, shape, or form. They're an elite offense and a solid enough defense, you know, against non-elite competition. 
And so that affects the way that I think about both those teams. I mean, we we talked about the idea of, you know, like what happens if the Raptors can't really do it against the Cavs. I still pick that series to go six, despite how well Cleveland played in the first round. And yeah, Lowry being hurt didn't help, but I'm fascinated to see what their ownership in most, most importantly, like people oftentimes conflate front office and ownership. And I mean, they are different parts of the same whole, but the most important question with the Raptors is, are their owners willing to pay to keep this team together? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that either. I also don't know if you should want to pay to keep them together, given like how far they've shown they are, like you said, from the Cavs. I mean, even last year, it was like the Cavs gave them those two games out of six. Like It, it almost seemed like out of pity. Like, they went to Toronto and, like, didn't try for those two games. And then I was like, all right, you can have them. We're going to beat you anyway. This year, they just decided not to give them the two games, and they just got blown off the floor. Um, Obviously, like, this group is the best team that they've ever had, but it does seem to have a pretty firm ceiling of where they landed in these last two years. They're not close to getting over the top. So, you know, in addition to the question of whether they would pay to keep the team together, I think there's also a question of whether, you know, Masai or the rest of the front office even wants to. You know, it's been talked about a whole lot. Like, they were going to tank a couple of years ago until all of a sudden they traded Rudy Gay and became awesome. Um, They never planned to keep this group together. Now, all of a sudden, they're a few years down the line. It's been together. They've been really, really good but they're also not close to getting over the top. So I think it's an interesting dichotomy there between not only whether the owners would pay for it, but whether they're going to want to keep it together at all. It's also a real challenge because there isn't a realistic way to keep this team competitive without it being expensive. DeMar DeRozan's already under contract for about $28 million per year. Kyle Lowry is going to get a lot of money. Serge Ibaka, even if it's not the full max, there was that reporting out there that maybe he'll take something a little bit less than his maximum. He's still going to be expensive. You have those guys. And then you also have this problem with older high-end players. And so Kyle Lowry is going to be there. Serge Ibaka, we don't know exactly how old he is, but you know, he's going to be post-prime for most of this contract. And so the challenge there is if it doesn't work, it's a lot harder to get out of. Because basically once you've kind of cast this die, that's your team. And you can't just wipe away their salaries. You know, it's not going to be an easy thing because Kyle Lowry is going to be really expensive. You're probably going to need to give up assets if you want to give him up after the, you know, at some point during this contract. Abaka is the same. DeRozan is, I, I would say there's probably still teams that see him as an asset. I'm a little bit more dubious on that just because I'm not sure how his game is going to age. But so you're not just committing to trying it out. You're committing to that being your team for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's also... So they have these two very highly paid players that now don't look like they're necessarily high enough level players to to be more than fringe level contributors on the kind of team the Raptors want to be. You know, they're paying Jonas and Damari Carroll, you know, somewhere between like twenty eight and thirty two million dollars a year over the next three years, and then Jonas as a player option. Uh, for seventeen point six million the year after that, I guess it's the, the next two seasons uh, after this one because the the sixteen seventeen season already happened, and I don't know necessarily that you would have to attach assets to Jonas to give him away, but you probably do have to to get rid of Demari Carroll's. Uh, looks like it's like I guess that's twenty nine point two million 
no, 30.2 million over the next two years, that's not a good deal. And, and I know that the cap's going up, so it's going to wind up being like 15% of the cap rather than, you know, 18 or 19. That's still not someone you necessarily want to be paying 15% of the cap right now. And if they want to keep Ibaka and if they want to keep Lowry, they sort of have to get rid of one or both of those contracts if they don't want to be paying, you know, 70, 80, 90 million dollars additionally in luxury tax payments. And I think that's going to prove difficult for them. It's also hard because wings are valuable. Carroll's, I mean, he's not a straight wing. I think of him more as a forward because he plays them four. But he's turning 31 this summer. So mm-hmm. a team has to sell themselves if they're going to trade for Damari Carroll on, oh, we're going to be successful right away. You know, you're not going to trade for him if you're Sacramento or something like that because he's not providing as much, you know, he's not providing as much future value as present value. And while 15 million, you know, there are guys that are going to get way worse contracts than that this summer, it's certainly not chump change. And you and I are both cap nerds. We, we can attest to how the cap is really shrinking. So there are not going to be as many teams that and even could um, take this kind of salary if they wanted to. Right. That's why uh, I don't think I'm not as low on DeRozan's contract as some other people are, because after a jump next season, it stays flat. For the next four years, you know, if you include the player option at the end of it, and you look at the um, the contracts that are going to be signed this summer, this is something that I talked about uh, on the HP thread very briefly last week. The contracts that get signed this summer with the 5% raises and 8% raises are jumping at a significantly faster rate than the cap. So if you sign someone to a similar contract as DeRozan this summer, but you do it with the normal, you know, 5% or 8% raises, that player is going to be making, you know, 40 plus percent of the cap by the time his contract is up. Where DeRozan is still going to be, you know, at like, I guess, yeah, he'll be like less than 30% of the cap even in two or three years from now based on, you know, where the projections are. So it's not quite as bad, uh, you know, even if it probably outstrips. Uh, the production he's likely to give based on you know the level he produced this year, because other contracts are going to rise so much faster than his, I think it becomes a little bit more palatable. That's a great point, and it's something I should note more often when we talk about talk about where his contract is. And then the other part of the Raptors, not that this is going to be an entirely Raptors podcast, but I do like talking about them, is that they have to figure out what they want to do with their supporting players. They traded two second-round picks that aren't that good for P.J. Tucker, but part of that was about this playoffs. Part of that was the ability to use bird rights to re-sign him. And then Patrick Patterson has been an important part of what the Raptors have done for years now. And Adding contracts to those guys, you know, they're both on a little bit on the older end. I mean, Patterson, I think he's like 28 or so. But it gets into the idea of, you know, kind of years, not dollars and and everything else, because you want to kind of go after two things with them. One is if you spend if you give them a shorter term contract, they're going to want more money per year. And that's going to ratchet up your luxury tax payments because the Raptors, if they retain those guys, they're definitely a tax team. And if you give them more years, then you're basically committing to the same core for a long time on a stable cap. Yeah, I think we're going to find out uh, this summer what they really think of guys like Bruno and Siakam and Norm Powell. Like, if they pay a whole bunch of money to bring Patterson and Tucker back, they probably don't think those guys are ready to play anytime in the next you know, year or two or maybe even three. If they're comfortable letting one or both of those guys walk, I think it tells us that they think, you know, these guys might be ready to play real roles pretty soon. 
And they have so many young guys because they also have Jakob Pertl and mm-hmm. Bebe Noguero. Like, this team just has a ton of young players. That and, are, like, that are... and DeLon Wright and Van Vliet even look like an interesting player at times. Right, and Norm Powell to me is kind of separate because he's a he's established himself a little bit more, and he plays a different position. Yeah. Well, he plays, I guess, the same as Bruno, but he's way better than Bruno. So that that's there. And then, like, the, I think the other kind of exception to that is I'm going to be interested to see what they do with Corey Joseph. Like, Joseph is the one guy on their team who unambiguously, like, if they want to move him to clear salary, they can do it. I have yes. no doubt about that because he's making about seven and a half million next year, and he has a player option for the next year. That's fine for a backup point guard. That's actually great for a backup point guard. So are they willing to, as a team, if they want to be this competitive, expensive team, are they willing to give those backup minutes to DeLon Wright, to Van Vliet, you know, however they're going to make it work? Are they willing to throw those guys into the fire, especially considering Kyle Lowry's, you know, his history of getting hurt? You know, the idea of like, can those guys shoulder the burden if you're making the playoffs? Or are you under the logic of, well, if Lowry, you know, if he's ineffective or he's injured, we're just kind of dead in the water anyway. So we don't need to spend seven million or plus the luxury tax payments to keep around Corey Joseph. Yeah. And it's also Joseph is essentially on an expiring contract next year for 7.6 million because the year after, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, is a player option. It is. And based on the, you know, the way he's played the last couple of years, there's no doubt he's going to opt out and try to cash in, you know, when the cap is, you know, $102 million, him making $8 million, you know, his production completely outstrips that level of salary. So, you know, this is probably the last time they'll be able to get something for him if they do want to go that route, because somebody's going to pay him a lot more than that, whether it's to be a starter or a backup. And that's something I want to watch overall this this post or this off season is whether teams get proactive with some of that because we're going to see teams over the next couple of years that get capped out. And so there are two things to consider. One is there's a twenty million dollar buffer about between the salary cap and the luxury tax line. So some teams will use that just to retain their own guys. Dallas with Nerlens, you know, there are numerous other examples that'll be like that. But the, there are other teams that are just kind of floating in that range now for a couple of years. And so one of the smart things for those teams to do, or if you're a taxpayer, is trade for a guy who's already under contract. So getting Corey Joseph, you get his bird rights. That's certainly a big benefit. And so you can work with that. Joseph, he was a, that was a 2015 signing, correct? Am I right on that? I think so. Yeah. So he'll have full bird rights. Yes. Yeah, and so he'll have full, full bird rights. So that you know that could be a benefit for certain teams. For other teams, it doesn't matter as much. Like you can, you can acquire a guy depending on the price they're asking. You could acquire him as a rental with kind of the upside to buy. And I wonder how those are going to be handled this year because to me they provide a lot of surplus value for a sect of teams. Like one for me that's a, a good example of that is Orlando. Like I don't think Orlando is going to be a luxury tax team unless they get a whole heck of a lot better. But because of the expenditures that they have in other guys, you know, the fact that they're paying Fournier and Biombo $17 million a year for the next couple of years, paying Vooch, who they can maybe get out of, Terrence Ross, and then they're going to have to need, deal with extensions for, if they want to, for Aaron Gordon and Alfred Payton. So if they got a guy like Corey Joseph, not him specifically because they have enough point guards in that range, you know, like they're already paying DJ Augustine on that horribly misguided contract. So teams like that could benefit from getting guys with bird rights, because if they get a guy with bird rights, then you get the ability to pay them. It's it's better if you get restricted rights and bird rights, but, you know, you deal with what you can get. Yeah, I feel like Detroit is sort of in the same boat with their guys coming out. Like KCP's got to get paid this summer. You know, they're going to have their, their other younger guys coming up for more deals soon. They're already paying Drummond. 
Um, you know, they did pay Ish Smith basically the same contract as Corey Joseph, but for longer. Um, who knows what they're doing with Reggie Jackson? But you know, it's a similar thing. They could use guys that they could figure out a way to pay. You know, once they pay KCP, um, you know, without having to uh, to expend that tax money. So let's talk a little bit about Boston. Their situation did get more compelling with getting number one pick. Do you agree with the kind of, I, 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 think, I don't know if it's just kind of a bubble that you and I are both a part of, but it seems like a lot of us are saying that getting the number one pick makes it less likely that they will trade their 2017 choice. Yes. I, this is something I talked about at the deadline as part of the reason why I thought Danny didn't make a deal for whether it was you know, Jimmy Butler or Paul George. Uh, I thought that he had a number in mind, like in 2007, where if the pick falls inside whatever it was, top one, top two, top three, that he would keep it, and if it didn't, that he would trade it. And I think, obviously, top one was within that range. So now they're sitting there, and you go, okay, well, how do you reconcile what will probably be a point guard? How do you reconcile that with the rest of their team? And Boston... To, they're they're also in this place where some of the some of what will happen and the decisions are under their control, but other parts are not. Because I I if it were if I were Danny Ainge, a big part of my strategy would shift based on what Gordon Hayward does. Because I think of Hayward as as a kind of a jack of all trades for a couple of different team building approaches. Yeah, I think that makes sense, but I don't think it necessarily should affect who they draft. You know, you're taking oh, agree. the you know the best guy available no matter what, and if you get Hayward on top of that, it's great. Uh, the more interesting thing to me becomes, you know, they have, at this point, four guards that clearly look like rotation caliber players or better, plus they're going to add, you know, we'll say for argument's sake that it's Markel Fultz because that's probably going to be who it is. All of a sudden they're going to have five guys, um, three of them still on their rookie contracts, Isaiah and Bradley, obviously, uh, have already been paid, but are also going to be paid even more uh, coming up next summer. Who gets shipped out? Because you can't let, whether it's Isaiah or Bradley, whoever you're not going to pay, walk for nothing. Or if you decide you want to keep both of them, then you know at a certain point you have to deal Smart and or Rogier. So you know the the backcourt dance that they're going to have to do uh, at a certain point whether it's this summer or next summer, is going to be interesting to me. And then if they sign Gordon Hayward, I think the same thing you know comes with, with Hayward and Crowder and Jalen Brown because there's just not room for everybody to get paid what they're worth, You know, especially if Hayward gets a max deal and then if they're going to keep Isaiah, if he gets a max deal, all of a sudden you got you know three uh, seven- to nine-year vets on max deals with Isaiah, Horford, and Hayward. You can't afford Jay Crowder and Bradley and Smart and Rozier. Like something has to give at a certain point. So, you know, it's it's obviously really exciting. I think next year they can afford everybody, but you either have to cash in at the deadline or cash in this summer or cash in next summer, because at a certain point you're going to lose a really good asset for nothing otherwise. They would, and Boston has enough assets that th- while I am such a pragmatist that I would say you always want to get something for them, they it would be more palatable for them than anybody else. But along those lines, who do they consider Marcus Smart as conflicting with? Is it a backup point guard like Terry Rozier? Is it Avery Bradley? Is it Jay Crowder? Like, 
I don't know. I don't know where they see it. And with Marcus Smart, he only has one more year on a rookie scale contract, and then he's going to be what you would assume is properly paid. And that has two different components. One is, well, do you want to properly pay him? And then the second one is, if you don't, is it better to try to get something for him now? Let's say it's, I I had somebody asking me, you know, like, what is his value? And I think it's probably more like an early second than a late first, but those are so close together that I think some people try to define that rigidly and they shouldn't. It's, it's really, it's on a continuum. You know, there, those things are very, very close to each other. And so, yeah, maybe you can do something like that. But also, what is the downside of waiting, maybe not until the deadline, but until December to see what you have in all these other guys before you make that move? Is is a team really going to give you, like, if if let's say, let's say a team offers you 32 for him right now, and you think you could probably get 45 for him in January. I'm not sure that I'm, that that sort of a trade-off is something that I would rather take the front end of it if I'm legitimately unsure what he's going to be. Yeah, I think that that's true unless there's like, let's say, you know, you're in the middle of the draft and the best rebounder in the draft drops to 32 and you're sitting there saying, well, we already have Fultz now. We can slide him into the the theoretical, you know, third guard role that Smart's been playing uh, early on and then see what happens from there. And we can solve our, you know, horrible rebounding issues with this pick. Then maybe I might do it. But otherwise... Um, I do think it makes sense to at least see what the team looks like with all of these guys involved for, you know, whether it's until the December 15th deadline next year or, you know, until January or until the deadline or maybe even the whole season. Like, like you said, they're one of the few teams that could uh, realistically withstand losing somebody for nothing and have it work out okay for them. Before we move on to the other teams, we're getting close to the end of the playoffs, and we have two really well-constructed teams to, that are playing for the NBA championship in Cleveland and Golden State, and it is also a great time for those of you who are, have hiring control over your businesses to start building or keep building your own great team, and a excellent way to do that is through ZipRecruiter. So ZipRecruiter allows you to post your job just one place and you can get high quality applicants for exactly what you're looking for just about immediately. 100 plus job sites in one click and over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And another great thing about ZipRecruiter is that for those of you who've dealt with trying to hire somebody beyond the just the challenge of finding qualified people, the communication can get really hard. And what ZipRecruiter allows you to do is screen, rate, manage, filter candidates all in one place using their dashboard. So you don't have to worry about dealing with calls to the office or a, a batch of emails or things getting caught in filters or everything like that. You can do it all through ZipRecruiter's amazing platform. And so right now, listeners can start farming their own team on ZipRecruiter for free. You go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan, and you can post jobs for free. Again, that is ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. Now back to the conversation with Jared Dubin. Just because I was I was working on their offseason preview today, and I was I've been thinking about them some also early in the alphabet. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks have uh, just a, a tough situation with Paul Millsap, and the the reporting that own, their owner is going to be might negotiate with Millsap directly is also terrifying. It should be for the fan base because that sort of thing generally doesn't work work out well. But if you were the Hawks and if you were Millsap, what would you be thinking right now? If I'm Millsap, I'm trying to get whoever will give me the full max deal. Um, you know, why not get as much money as you can? Uh, if I'm the Hawks, I'm pretty terrified 
of giving him that full max. Like, especially if you give him the fifth year, uh, you know, he's, what is he, 32? Or is he 33? He's 32. He turned 32 in February. Yeah, I don't know that I'm at all comfortable with paying 37-year-old Paul Millsap $40-plus million in five years. Like, I, I think a lot of these max deals this summer, especially for guys over 30, are going to look really bad in a couple of years. And, and I don't think I necessarily want to be the team to give it to him. Like, I would rather pay Paul Millsap whatever it is, $70 million for two years if I'm the Hawks, then lock him in for four. Especially because we know what this team is when they're full strength. I mean, so if they bring back Millsap, their team is going to be Schroeder, Bazemore, Millsap, and Howard as the principals. Then they'll bring in, you know, the Hawks University guys. Torian Prince looked good this year. Mm-hmm. Bembry's going to take some time. And then they'll have support pieces, whoever that is, whether it's retaining the guys they already have or finding new ones. They have a draft pick, all that sort of stuff. That team is... Like we talked about how that decision's hard for the Raptors. To me, that decision is completely it's it's very clear for the Hawks, at least in terms of how I define it, especially considering they didn't make much noise this year. Yeah, I think they're gonna regret not pulling the trigger on some sort of Millsap deal at the deadline just because their choices now are basically let him walk for nothing or give him a contract that's gonna be a hamstring within, you know, two or three years. Um the, the team as constructed isn't going anywhere interesting, and I'm not sure how you solve that. Uh, it's not like you're going to get a whole lot of interesting pieces for Bazemore or Dwight. Maybe you could for Schroeder, but then all of a sudden you're looking at, well, is, De- is Delaney ready to be the point guard? And the answer is probably not. Um, you know, Like you said, Prince looked interesting this year. Bembry might take a little bit more time. You know, do they really want to pay Tim Hardaway Jr. $15-plus million a year? Uh, then all of a sudden you're playing Bazemore and Hardaway like thirty million a year. That's crazy. Like they're they're in a, a really unenviable position, and not for the reasons the team's position are usually unenviable. And the idea of who they could get value for is, is another sticky part of this for them. So you're you're basically committing to that core and. I, Millsap's a hard guy to necessarily say, oh, this is a, a particularly great fit for him. I've been selling myself on Denver just because I think the combination of Millsap and Jokic would fit together really well. And their guys are just so cheap for so long. Broadly, there are exceptions to that they're so cheap for so long that a, a four year max because they can't give him five is it's OK. It's not great. You know, like the last year or two of that are not going to be amazing. But, you know, I think they I think they can deal with that considering they're still going to have Jamal Murray on a cheap contract. They're still going to have this year's pick, Juancho Hernan Gomez, whoever they retain of all those kind of groups. They're going to have all those guys for cheap for basically the entire Millsap contract. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think Minnesota makes a degree of sense uh, if you put him next to Towns in the front court. I think Portland would make sense, but they are capped out for 9 million years and uh, apparently want to give their first-round pick away to get somebody to take a bad contract. I don't know whose contract you could give away with it. Uh, I guess maybe Crab. Um, I would I would hang on to Harkless if I were them. I don't think anybody's taking on that Evan Turner disaster. 
It's going to take some assets to do it. I, I don't think that any of their worst contracts and their best contracts are intriguing, but they're all short term. You know, Alfred Aminu, Ed Davis going into that. But I want to. I want you brought up Minnesota. I think Minnesota is another example. Portland and Minnesota actually are probably examples of the two different parts of the coin of how teams have screwed up parts of this. So Portland did it by retaining their guys at high prices and not really, or either either not seeing where it was going or being okay with it. You know, if Paul Allen wants to pay these guys, whatever, it's his money. I'm not going to, you know, that, that's a very different thing. If they start attaching assets to get rid of those guys, then it was a really bad decision. But Minnesota, what their mistake was, was basically giving a player who was not a defined part of their core, committing to him before they had to. So Gorgie Jang is not a bad player, not at all. And giving him 15 million, it's it's not horrendous, but they had more upside than that. And paying him when they did made it a lot harder to theoretically go for a more high upside swing like Paul Millsap or whoever else. Right. And then they also paid another center, Cole Aldrich, a bunch of money when like Carl Towns should be playing center. Like, you know, they gave Aldrich whatever it is, you know, seven something million dollars a year for three years. It was like three for 21. Um, but all of a sudden you're giving out, you know, $21, $22 million a year to two centers when the best player on your team should be playing center. So it's like it's just not a good use of resources. And also you think about that those were not that's not a high leverage sum of money. You know, there are there are times when you want to spend a bunch of when you want to spend cap space to shore something up. But they were a young team that didn't really know what they had. So you don't want to commit long term money to lock yourself into these different spots. And as you said, Towns could be a center. So I could understand paying one of them. I thought the Aldrich contract in a vacuum was fine. I didn't think it was much of a problem with it, but committing that into Jang, it's like, well, where are these guys going to play? How is this all going to work? And if it doesn't work, how are you going to get out of them? And I've talked numerous times about how the center market is going to be a problem, and Cole Aldrich is a good manifestation of this. You know, he's a fine player. I think he's a backup, and $7 million is substantially better for him than for, for some of the other contracts like Myers Leonard that are out there. But I don't see any teams champing at the bit to say, hey, we want Cole Aldrich, we'll, even if we're not giving an asset, but hey, we'll take him into our space to help you get Paul Millsap or whoever it is that they want. Right. Like, Aldrich's contract makes sense as a backup center contract that you're fine with and you can keep for those three years if you don't also go give Jank $15 million. Like, if he's your backup to Carl Towns at center, I think that's a perfectly nice deal and he's a perfectly nice player on that deal. Uh the problem is that they gave a deal twice that big to another player at the same position, and now you either have to attach something to get rid of Aldrich because you want to use that space elsewhere, or you have to find a taker for Jang's $15 million contract, and he's a nice player again, but nobody's like clamoring to pay Gorgie Jang $15 million. So it's, it's a question not only of how you allocate your own resources, but if you want to reallocate them in the future... How difficult do you make it by giving players contracts that size? Um, the most interesting thing with them, though, to me, is Zach Levine is, I believe, extension eligible this summer. Uh, he was picked in 2014 yes. going into the final year of his rookie contract. I thought he was looking really good for them uh, before he got injured. 19 points a game, 3.5 rebounds, 3 assists, shooting 39% from 3 on 6.6 attempts a game. Uh, I really like his combination of shooting and athleticism, and I thought that they figured out finally this year that he's an off-guard and not a point guard at all. 
Um, but he's able to put some of those quote-unquote point guard skills to use in attacking closeouts. To me, he's a really interesting player, but now he's got the knee injury, and it's all of a sudden it completely, possibly, changes his ceiling as a player. I would imagine they'll just wind up going through next year and not extend him this summer, especially because they don't want to have the, the bigger cap hit on their books after next summer in, in case they do wind up with cap space. But if he has another really good season, all of a, all of a sudden he becomes much more expensive than if they decided that they were going to extend him coming off his injury. The timeline for the ACL tears for both Zach Levine and for Jabari Parker will be challenging for their current teams because they the extension window only goes until the start of the regular season. So those guys are not going to be 100% when that happens. And they're not going to know exactly what they have in either of them before that window. Then they will have enough time, assuming they keep on their timetables now, and hopefully they do. Hopefully they are they go past it and they get get back even earlier. But if if they hold to that timeline, they'll have enough time to make an impression on other teams and maybe recoup some of the value that they're doing there. So so coming to a number with either one of them is going to be absolutely brutal, especially when both those teams, depending on how they spend the summer, are going to be looking at some very expensive futures with, to that point, having really not been as competitive as they hope to be in the future. The Bucks made the playoffs this year, but you know, I think they want to win playoff series and Minnesota wants to make the playoffs and win playoff series. Yeah, the Bucks question is really interesting because, and I, and I saw somebody talking about the Bucks uh, earlier in the day, you know, they have the brightest non-LeBron future of any team in the East. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but the reason was because, you know, they've drafted well and because they haven't given out bad money. Uh, I would definitely quibble with the idea that they haven't given out bad money. They gave out bad money to not Miles, not Marshall, whatever the other Plumlee, or sorry. No, it was they Miles. Miles Plumlee. Yeah, they paid Miles Plumley and then had to dump his contract into uh, Spencer Hawes and Roy Hibbert. They gave John Henson uh, a contract for God knows what reason and glue him to the bench. And now they've got guys that they might want to pay in the future. And I don't know where all the money is going to come from. You know, maybe Greg Monroe opts out and leaves. Then all of a sudden they need a center. Um, I don't know who that is. It's, it doesn't appear to be John Henson. It's certainly not Spencer Hawes. I would guess that it's Thon Maker. Is he ready to be the full-time center yet? I think he showed some interesting flashes. Maybe they just throw him to the Wolves right away. But they've got guys on their books that I don't think are necessarily desirable. Like, do you want to be paying John Henson and Del Vadova $20-plus million combined over the next three seasons? I certainly don't. And if they want to pay Jabari, now all of a sudden that's another added expense. And that's, you know, that's that's long-term expenses, too. You know, uh, Henson is under contract through 2020. Del Vadova is as well. Uh, who else? Uh, Middleton well, and then, under and then Chris, Mid- Chris Middleton and Brogdon are both going to get raises if they're keeping them the same summer in 2019. That's right. going to be expensive too. Yep. And Jabari is, I guess, after next summer. Like, cause, although I suppose they could just go through this season and have him on the, the $8.8 million qualifying offer that I just brought up. But I would imagine somebody's going to pay him more than that next summer, and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, keep Somebody, somebody's going to offer him a lot of money. Yeah, somebody's going to offer it, and they're going and they're going to force Milwaukee's hand, just like we we see, because you can sell yourself on Jabari's potential. He was great when he was healthy this year. Yeah, and look, they got to pay Tony Snell, right? Like he was really good for them this year. Are they ready to give that job to Rashad Vaughn or who knows who else? Yeah, it, it's all a challenge, and I mean we're seeing this in various situations that. 
guys that are good value contracts become challenges very quickly in the NBA now. And and so you, you don't use because you don't usually get rookies that deliver in the ways that some of them have. So you're, you're getting into these circumstances like Boston's going to have this with Isaiah and with Avery Bradley. You know, they've benefited from that for a long time. Those guys are going to get really expensive. And to me, the poster children of that are the Utah Jazz. You know, the Jazz had this amazing young core that is still an amazing youngish core, but all of a sudden they've transitioned from Rudy Gobert, you know, being a defensive player of the year candidate on a rookie scale contract to Rudy Gobert being a defensive player of the year candidate on close to a full max contract. Gordon Hayward, same thing. You know, even even though he signed for his maximum, that maximum looked looked a lot better for a couple of years. And so now those guys are going to get more money. They're going to have to figure out what they want to do with Derek Favors. And so those chickens always come home to roost for teams. And there are kind of two different ways that you can resolve it. You can either resolve it by paying them or you can resolve it by trying to get some assets and, you know, staying at maybe a little bit of a lower level. And especially when those are mid-market teams or teams that maybe can't afford to be, you know, repeater tax teams, it's tough. It's it's not a decision that is that I would like to make if I had to if I was owning a team in those kind of markets. Yeah, I agree. But the one thing that I think works out well for both Milwaukee and Utah is that their guys in Giannis and Gobert very much like DeRozan, their contracts do not rise as quickly as the guys that are going to sign those deals this summer. And they're starting from a lower point as well. So those contracts are going to look better than, say, I don't know who's going to get a max this summer, a four-year max this summer. I'm trying to think of just an example of literally one guy. Otto Uh, Porter? Otto Porter, sure. Giannis's contract is going to look a lot better than his. And I think it's going to look a lot better than Gordon Hayward's, uh, even even if you assume similar level uh, of talent. Um, and I think the same is true of Gobert. Utah, if they can get Hayward to come back, they're going to be fine because having him and, and Gobert is the basis of a very good team over the life of the two contracts. They do, I think, need to probably liquidate favors at this point. Like, they don't have the information like we talked about before the playoffs uh, on whether it you know, definitely works, quote-unquote, long-term with him and Gobert next to each other. But at this point, I think they've shown that it's, not, it's just not going to happen for them to where they're going to be healthy enough at the right times. And then in the playoffs, downsizing uh, worked out pretty well for them. And, and I just don't know that they need favors to be the best kind of team that they can be. And it might be better for them, you know, especially if George Hill leaves, because that's not a guarantee either. You know, maybe they need to get another point guard. Maybe they need to get another shooter. Um, you know, they're going to have decisions to make next summer with Rodney Hood. Um, so there's there's other things they need, I think, than a guy who is like a, a tweener fit that may not necessarily be able to play with Gobert uh, and may wind up being his backup in the playoffs. You alluded to it, and we often as we should, focus on extension negotiations after July, just because while they can happen then, and we have seen some high-profile guys make those announcements, including Anthony Davis back when he was extension eligible early on in July, Utah having Dante Exum and Rodney Hood extension negotiations this summer is going to be brutal because I think they know what they have in Hood. They don't in Exum at all, but they still need to figure out what is going on with the rest of their team. And so... I am of the mind that 
you want to kind of you want to wait unless a guy takes a significant discount. But if they could get some sort of cost certainty with this team, it would certainly help. And what cost certainty means is going to be impacted by what George Hill does, what Gordon Hayward does, and, and all those sorts of things. So there, Dennis Lindsay's offseason does not stop when Gordon Hayward and George Hill make their decisions. It stops when they figure out what they're doing with those two guys. Right, and uh, Diaw is a free agent this summer, too? Well, so Diaw is non-guaranteed. He's he's a, an interesting situation because so he, he has a $7.5 million non-guarantee, and so... I think that, and it doesn't, it, the decision, I think it's mid-July, I think it's the 12th or something like that. So my question has been for a little while, not necessarily does he, like, would Utah want to have him? Because I think Utah, if Gordon Hayward and George Hill come back, they're going to need to save money. And so they'll probably just look to dump him. But it's, would another team rather have Boris Diaw on that contract for one year than sign one of these other power forwards to what they're probably going to want a three or four year contract? I would definitely rather have DL on that contract than sign one of these. It's very similar to me to the Bogut situation last year. I would much rather have Bogut than like almost any of the centers signed to big money deals last year. And I thought the Mavs, you know, they got paid in, in what, a first round pick to take him? A second. A second? That's far preferable to signing Mozgov for $64 million, or Noah for $72 million, or Mahimi for $64 million. Like, I thought that was crazy that teams went after and paid those guys last year when, when Bogut was out there basically for free. That, that, to me, I think is an interesting situation with Diaw as well, even though his deal is non-guaranteed. Also, the disparity last year between those guys and the players that took the room mid-level, and a lot of that is also situational. I mean, you know, Zaza Pachulia could have gotten overpaid by somebody, but instead he chose that. I think Nene probably had a higher higher value. He, he should have had a higher value offer on the table. But Deadman, Nene, and Pachulia all, I would say, outperformed the max-level centers on that market. And you could say, oh, well, you know, they weren't going to get those guys for that value. But it's a reminder that centers are a very expendable thing, unless you're talking about the best of the best. You know, like, I have no problem with Al Horford's contract. I mean, it's, it, you know, he's getting older and all that kind of stuff. But for guys that you don't think are the answer presently and in the long term, just don't pay those guys. Don't do it. It's not worth it, ever. Yeah, I agree. And look, I think it's the center market is really interesting again this year. Um, you know, Deadman's going to be back out there again. JaVale now is going to be a free agent. Zaza is going to be on the market again because he signed for the one year. Um, you know, all of a sudden you have restricted free agents, Nerlens and Plumlee on the market. You would imagine Greg Monroe is going to opt out. Uh, Powell could opt out and go back on the market again. I mean, I would rather have the young guys in almost every situation just because they're likely to get better uh, over the course of their deals. But who's paying JaVale McGee this summer? Is somebody going to give him $10 million a year for a multi-year deal? And if you're him, don't you want to just stay in Golden State? Like, to me, that makes the most sense for him, even if he has to take less money. But is somebody going to give Deadman double-digit million dollars a year? Like, I, I don't know. I think it's it's an interesting market again, and I think you might be able to get better deals again by taking somebody's center that they don't want in a trade than by, you know, paying top dollar for one of these guys out there. Right. And we're also going to see some guys eventually just get left behind by the market. And I don't know if it's going to be somebody more on that higher level. Also, some guys are just going to take themselves off by, by discounted rates, but 
Think about, you know, some of the restricted guys. I think one of the biggest lessons of last year should have been that there were values to be had, not only even just with those guys, but there were there were just values to be had. Like Seth Curry's a great example of this. Like Seth Curry mm-hmm. could have gotten more money, could have gotten, you know, they could a better deal. Dallas was they were aces on that. And we're going to see players like that. I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be Alan Williams, but like Alan Williams, Christiana Felicio, like somebody's gonna get lost in the shuffle. They're probably gonna be three or four big men that are worthy of at least rotation minutes and everybody else is going to get overpaid pretty much unless they choose not to be themselves. And so how all that works out and, and a lot of these guys, Taj Gibson is a great example of this Patrick Patterson, who we talked about a little bit earlier, those guys have never had those huge paydays. So they're going to be looking for a team to make a mistake, but whether somebody does or not is an open question. Yeah. Last year I thought that, the bargain guy was going to be Festus Azili. That didn't work out too well. Well, and, I, and we're also going to see, like, who's going to push the market for Jermichael Green, for Kelly Olenek? I mean, Olenek very well could just have his qualifying offer rescinded. Like, Boston's, we talked about them earlier, they're up in the air. But, like, Jermichael Green. Jermichael Green's not a bad player, but who's, if they think that Memphis is going to match, is somebody going to do the Brooklyn Nets thing of, like, give him a competitive offer and just assume that you're tying up your money for two days? Yeah, I mean, why not if you're, why not if you're the Nets? Offer him a two-year deal with an opt-out in the third year and force the Grizzlies to match that. Better than throwing money at Moda Yunus. Yeah, I would I would certainly rather green than Moda Yunus. And I mean, there's there's other guys that are interesting, too. I mean, does anybody want to pay Alex Len this summer? He was the number five pick, what, three years ago at this point? Uh, I believe he's a restricted free agent this summer, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, do the Suns really want to match a big deal on him? Does anybody really want to give him a big deal? I mean, that's that's a weird situation as well. And does he want to really like take the qualifying offer or something like that if the market? Because does he think it's going to be so much better next year? And remember, Phoenix is paying Tyson Chandler for another couple of years. I don't know if they can get out of that contract. And then Alan Williams, I thought he did a solid enough job. He's restricted too. He's yeah, and a they also limited, just but, drafted yeah. Chris and Bender last year. Like, are those yep. guys their center and power forward of the future, or are they the power forward and small forward? Like, are they going to play? The two of them with Alex Lynn, is that what they envision there? Like, it's a strange situation. Yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of things to look forward to. Let's take, like, just a couple minutes to talk about the finals. Most people will listen to this kind of around when that comes out. What are you looking forward to, and what do you expect? I am expecting, I'm in the minority here. I don't necessarily foresee an, an epic rubber match battle that we all remember for years to come. I, I wrote about it actually at Vice as it came out today. I view it very much like the 2014 finals when people thought we were going to get the the epic rematch between the Heat and the Spurs, and you know the 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 Heat at that time sort of cruised along and they didn't play defense as well, and the the core around their big three was a little bit older and sort of lost a step defensively, and they ran up against the Spurs and they just couldn't deal with the Spurs offense. Uh, I think we're going to get a similar series to that this year. Um, in, in all the talk about how last year proved like the Cavs would have beaten the Warriors the year before, people somehow seem to forget that that series was over until Draymond punched LeBron in the balls. That, that, that thing was ending in five games. And then Draymond punched LeBron, got suspended, Bogut got hurt, and it gave more time to, for, to expose you know what was going on with Steph. It took such a crazy confluence of events for them to 
not only win the series, but to stay alive in the series for it to even get to game six or seven. Um, I, I don't think it was this epic close matchup before that. And it just took like a fluke thing for it that look, it's a, maybe the ma- most amazing accomplishment that I've seen in basketball coming back from that three, one lead. And I think, you know, to me, the fact that the warriors were clearly the better team makes the Cavs accomplishment even better. Um, I'm, I'm weird like that. Cavs fans get offended when you say that, but I don't think the teams are all that close this year based on what we saw throughout the season. And, and I don't know how the Cavs can deal with them defensively. So I guess what I'm excited to see is whether they can reach a level of offense that makes uh, the fact that they won't be able to deal with Golden State's defense not matter. I agree with all that. And we'll add in that if you take the idea of expected value or performance last year, so Cleveland, other than Kevin Love's concussion, which I actually think helped set the table for what happened because that allowed them to realize LeBron's best defensive matchup. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they got about the best that you could expect from a lot of their guys. LeBron was otherworldly. Kyrie was great, especially in games five and seven, but especially game five. I mean, he was incredible in game five. Tristan was game very good in that was... series. They got they got Richard Jefferson throwback performance. So you think about all those different things and you say, OK, you know, a lot of different uh, different elements went very well for the Cavs. And most of their guys are post prime. So you expect that they'll be a little bit worse. And the guys that are prime ish, they're not really like Kyrie's still wonderful, but he's not really better than he was last year to me. Love it has been better in moments, but that's more how they've been using him rather than that. He's a better player. And the Warriors, Curry isn't hurt. Iguodala is less hurt than he was at the end of that series last year. Their centers are way healthier. And also, they traded, functionally, Harrison Barnes for Kevin Durant. Right. So if you, we were, take, your, take your statement, which I agree with, that the Warriors were, by and large, the better team last year, and that doesn't denigrate Cleveland's accomplishment. Beating a better team is actually a really rare thing in the finals, and it's always an accomplishment. So if we're taking that as, as base, or even close to it, it you're expecting if that the Warriors will be better than they were last year, possibly significantly so, and the Cavs will be worse, maybe not much worse, but a little bit. And so if that's your expectation, then the Warriors should be favored in the series. And I, I don't argue with those who have it heavily. I think the Cavs, the Cavs are going to force like six games just because I believe in their in their talent. But in terms of where this series is, in terms of the overall level, I think it's more like Warriors in five. But I respect Cleveland enough to give them an extra game or two. Yeah, I um, am even more toward the extreme, I think, than most people. Like I, I almost think that four is more likely than six. Um, I feel like if they hadn't had the miraculous comeback last year, nobody would be talking about how this is like a series that they have a chance in. Um, of course, the miraculous comeback did happen, but the likelihood of it happening was so small that I don't know how much it should factor in to our expectation for what happens in this series. Um, you know, look, they proved me wrong last year. I thought the Warriors were going to clean them up, and they were right on the way to doing that. And you know. And, Draymond punched LeBron on the balls, and then they didn't. I, I do want to touch on one last thing, though, with the Steph injury stuff, because this is something that like gets people all kinds of fired up. Just because you're injured doesn't mean that you can't play or that you can't play great at times. You're just not as consistent and consistently great as you usually are. So, yeah, like Steph was hurt during the conference finals and the finals. That's not an excuse. It's just a thing that factored in. Um, and even while he was hurt, that's how you know how good he is because he had that amazing game uh, against the against the the Thunder in the conference finals. He even played. I can't remember which game in the finals that he had. I think he had like one, not 
unbelievable game, but you know, a typical Steph game. I can't remember off the top of my head, um, and, and all the the haze between watching everything from last year. But just because you're injured doesn't mean that you're ineffective at all times. Like you, you can be effective and then not effective, and like maybe not as effective as you usually are. Like there's a scale. Uh, involved here, yeah, and it was in game four when he had 38 uh, that I was thinking of. Um, but yeah, so that that's where I sort of come down on that thing. And people were like, "Oh, it's ex post facto reasoning." Nope, I was even in the middle of that Thunder series. I was talking about how he's still clearly hurt, uh, and I've got the receipts. So the, the craziest part about the whole thing is everybody who's ever played basically anything competitively at any level understands what it's like to play when you're not right. And how right. that's fundamentally different. You know, I played mostly soccer. That was my, that was the sport I was best at growing up. There were times where I got like, I got popped in the ankle or I got hit in the knee and I played the rest of that game. And I wasn't, you know, I, I could, sometimes I could still play well. Sometimes I had to sit, you know, various different things, but there is a fundamental difference between being right and being not right. And he wasn't right. You know, he wasn't 100%. And again, it's not an excuse. It's an explanation. I mean, our job, as I see it, is to explain things and analyze them. And acknowledging every every single circumstance like that is exceedingly important. And it's you're not trying to apologize for the guy because he doesn't need my apology. He doesn't care. It doesn't, right. it doesn't, it doesn't make him any more money. It doesn't change anything in anybody's in anything. It's not going to change his Hall of Fame eligibility or anything like that. It's just... If your goal is to predict and to explain what happened and see how it's going to happen in the future, acknowledging the importance of everything like that is there. It's it's mandatory. I don't like the the idea that excuse and explanation often get conflated from people. Like you're looking if you're looking for reasons why the Cavs won, one of them is that Steph wasn't right. That doesn't like I don't know how to explain to people the difference between excuse and explanation, but they're not the same thing. Like, the Cavs won fair and square. It's not like we're saying, ah, they won and only because Steph was hurt. Like, they won for a whole lot of reasons. That's just one of them. And that factors into, you know, why I don't think it'll be as close this year. Because Steph clearly, I mean, he couldn't possibly be playing better in the playoffs than he's playing right now. Yeah, I was debating whether I want to get into my whole thing about deserving champions, but I don't think it's I don't think it's worth the time. Maybe I'll do it after. But, uh, well, I think we can end it there. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read him all over the internet, and you can also follow him on Twitter at jadubin5. That's J-A-D-U-B-I-N-5. Really enjoyed talking with him, and I wanted to bridge that specific gap, let him know that that's what I wanted to do when he was totally on board, so that was great. And still trying to figure out exactly how the next couple weeks are going to go. It depends a lot on how long the NBA Finals run, because next week's episode will certainly not be before the end of the finals, but then the week after that, maybe depending on if it's shorter, if it's long. So still working on that. And of course, moving into off season and the draft and everything like that. My current idea is that I will do a post draft podcast and then do an off season previewy type thing. That's the current idea. It's always up for negotiation and reflection and everything like that. So I'm still working through that. And then of course the off season is a big part for Real Jam Radio because I, I love doing it. And so we can do that. And if you want to hear my thoughts on the finals you can listen to dunked on nate and i did a while on it i think like 45 minutes to an hour and then locked on warriors this entire week so far has been previews with chris manning with the great jim barnett and with
with Adam Wardson tonight, and then game one will actually be on Friday, on Thursday. So you can listen to that one, to the recap at that point. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com, at Larue on Twitter. You can also support the show a lot of different ways. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can subscribe. You can download every episode. And you can also check out our sponsors. This week, that is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is a great way to find your next employee or hopefully find your next employer. But this one is on the employer side. And so you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan and you can post jobs for free. It's another great way. It tells them you came from us and no cost. Pretty awesome. We'll be back next week at some point in the indeterminate time frame that is next week. I have a couple different ideas and we'll see where it turns out. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank you.